Welcome back to our series on historical counting and map making. Today's episode, the development of counting in ancient civilizations and the influence of mapping in colonial Latin America. My name is Jared Machado, and today I'm joined by Ali Tucker. How are you doing today, Ali? I'm doing fantastic. That is great to hear. Well, it's truly a pleasure of mine to have you here today. And I would like to start off discussing the technological advancements and intricacies uh, which some of the county systems uh, used by ancient civilizations in Latin America or back then, Spanish America. Okay, yeah. So um, the first piece of technology that we'll be discussing is the concept of zero. So the Mayan civilization was one of the first known civilizations to actually have a recorded numbering calendar system. Um, it's ex- the number system is extremely complex and involves several different forms of zero, all of which are depicted differently. Um, usually they're depicted by either a face or something else like a scorpion or a beetle, you know, all significant images in the Mayan culture. Um, so you've got the several different forms of zero, you've got a long count, a short count, and then you've got five periods. Um, and then there were three numbers in the Mayan counting system, um, zero, one, and five, and that's it. So there's more to it, but it's very confusing, and I really don't want to butcher it. Fair enough. The The Mayan, the Mayan people uh, were a complex people, and they definitely had their own way of doing things and the intricacies in doing things. It's very complex and can be very confusing at times. Uh, we're talking about a civilization that had large-scale construction, urban city-states and complex alliances and rivalries, truly a remarkable people. Um, but an, one of the most intricate forms um, and parts of their culture that that is known today um, is their calendar. Now, it's definitely... Uh, one of the most advanced calendars of its time uh, when it was uh, made and when it was uh, used uh, by the Mayans. Uh, we're talking about a civ- ancient civilization that had a calendar run for more than 2,000 years without missing a day. Um, truly, it's a feat that, uh, that the Mayans uh, accomplished uh, and is one of uh, the greatest calendars that 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 we as a civilization uh, know to be. Um, uh, now, talking a little bit more about this calendar, uh, the calendar was actually divided eighteen months and twenty days, with a closing period of five days, known as uh, the Mayan unlucky days, um, due to their religion um, and. Uh, and it was it, these these numbers that 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 led up created a large calendar round for the Mayans because in the eighteen months there was also uh, thirteen uh, days that that are numbered within these months and within these days. Uh, for for a modern day, we say Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and and so forth, uh, and we have seven of those. They had 20 days that were named uh, and 13 days that were numbered uh, for each month. Uh, and each month started with the number zero, uh, you know, talking about the significance of, of the uh, Mayan number of zero. Um, now, with all these numbers put together, 
This created a calendar round of 18,980. Now, this is in comparison of our modern calendar of 365. Now, the calendar round was huge. This means that if they wanted to have an identical day, 18,980 days must pass before an identical day with the same number, with the same date, uh, same month uh, will go around. For us, it's 365. Truly a remarkable calendar, uh, and, and it's a calendar that, is, that will go down in history as uh, definitely one of the most complex, intricate, and even accurate calendars um, in modern times, and uh, definitely in, in ancient times, but in the modern day, we recognize it. Yeah, definitely. They were truly, um, truly remarkable people. And there's, you know, so many scholars out there who have been studying them for years and still don't fully understand all of it. But um, the Mayas were not the only um, ancient civilization or people that were, you know, so full of surprises and that had complex societies and, and just civilizations. Um, There were also the Incas. They had some very advanced technologies. Um, Some of their most impressive sort of developments and technologies was um, their counting system called a kipu. Um, It was this woven counting system that was physical. Um, We'll talk more about that in a minute. They also had this intricate highway system um, that included two north-south roads, so one that was up in the mountains and then one down on the coast, um, you know, paved and everything, and then several east-west roads um, that they built connecting those two roads and the rest of their territory. Um, And obviously, you know, one of those roads went through the mountains, at least one, many of their roads went through the mountains, but one of the north-south roads went through the mountains. Um, and every time they, you know, had to build their road across a crack, a crevice, whatever, um, they would weave these amazing rope bridges that just spanned the largest canyons you could ever imagine. Um, and they lasted forever, and they were so, so incredible. Um, there was also another thing that you don't really think of an ancient civilization, like, knowing how to do is um, freeze drying. So they actually developed freeze drying food um, to keep it good for longer. And, you know, which obviously Mm -hmm. helped them a lot in their, you know, in the Central American climates. Um, But yeah, so the Incas, they were pretty, pretty amazing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Both, both of these civilizations um, really pushed out technologies that were, uh, uh, were advanced and, and definitely uh, defined the civilization um, at the time. Uh, fortunately, you talk about the Kipu. Unfortunately, we have a clip uh, from a bright Harvard uh, uh, student that was able to crack the code on the Kipu and really find out uh, you know, what it meant. Um, we will play that clip now. Yeah. Will you just start by describing what one of these cords looks like? Picture a horizontal string from which up to hundreds of other strings hang down like icicles. What we're looking at is hundreds of cords, each with a a series of knots which appear similar to a stretched out string mop is the best mental image I could try to conjure. Looking at images of them, it actually looks like a work of art, but it's there to communicate something. What was your insight about what it is communicating? Well, it's been established for about 100 years, actually, that these artifacts, and there's about a 1,000 of them that exist still today from the time of the Inca Empire, 
We've known for about 100 years that many of these encode numerical information, everything from census documents to tax information, just like our modern documents do today. But the change in tide that's been happening really in recent years, and the reason why this is still an exciting field of study for the future, is perhaps the idea is that these artifacts really went past just an abacus or just an Excel spreadsheet and may have contained narrative information. Truly a brilliant young man. It is really quite fascinating to look at uh, the discovery of a system uh, that was used in the Incan civilization. Um, very fascinating, the quipu. Uh, using color assignments and adding strings and different colors uh, to act as a census um, that the sums of these additions actually equaled the numbers of different first names in the society um, and it helped with you know conducting census holding records uh, even keeping taxpayers accountable it's quite fascinating uh, that the Incans were able to de develop a system like this. Um, really, South America was the only continent besides Antarctica um, where no civilization invented a system of graphical writing for over 10,000 years. Now, the quipu is an invention that helped uh, alleviate the lack of a graphical writing system. Um, and the project that that the quipu um, was able to to point out is that there was an incorrect narrative that the Incan people were less civilized and less advanced because they did not have a graphical writing uh, system or that the Mayans did not have a graphical writing system or anybody in Latin America did not. Um, but it is clear uh, that with technologies like the quipu, we clearly see that uh, the narrative should not be that these civilizations were in advance because clearly uh, they had their own complex and advanced ways of uh, conducting uh, numbers, counting numbers, and census uh, information. Well, that leaves us uh, with our counting uh, segment, and we'll see you in our next segment on mapping. Welcome back. Uh, let's dive into this next segment. I look forward to sharing our knowledge about both the indigenous and European influences on the colonial mapping of Spanish America. So it seems you're an expert on the indigenous influences on maps. Can you explain a little bit about what makes the form of map making so unique and how different and how we can tell their influences uh, apart from regular European maps, for instance? Of course. Um, so when the Spanish conquistadors, um, led by Cortes, arrived in Spanish America, they knew they immediately needed to start taking stock of the resources and treasures that they thought were available um, so that they could send a report back to the people who were sponsoring their trips, so specifically the King of Spain. Um, since they were there and able to see, you know, what a rich and bountiful land it was that they were looking at, they wanted the king to be able to see that as well. So he would have a better understanding of exactly what they were doing on his behalf in the Americas and how they were using his money and how this would benefit him so they would keep receiving his support. Um, so when Cortes got to Tenochtitlan, one of the first things he did um, 
and like the main thing that we know about today was he sat down and commissioned several maps of the area and the city and the land and um, wrote a lengthy letter to the king, like several 25 pages to the king to explain the maps um, and what had been what he had been doing in the Americas so far. Now, a few of the maps survive to this day, such as what is known um, as the Nuremberg map. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's it's great that you brought up the Nuremberg map, uh, it being one of the most unique artifacts of the time. Um, but what's specifically interesting about this map is the uncertainty that surrounds the nature of how this map was constructed. Like we know that the original woodcuts made of this map during the time um, are undoubtedly carved by Europeans. You know, this was a European style. They used uh, woodcuts very heavily in this society. Um, mm -hmm. However, these wood carvings do not match that of the images Cortez depicted in his letters. So there must have been another source to influence these woodcuts. Uh, there's a school of thought um, that points towards the indigenous population of the time. And just wanted to know a little bit more about that, if you can elaborate on this. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. So there's a lot of scholarship surrounding the origin of the Nuremberg map um, and why it looks so different, right? Like it doesn't look how the land actually looked like. It doesn't look like what you'd imagine Cortez is describing in these letters. Um, it's just really kind of out there. And the main theory that I personally support um, in my professional opinion and find the most convincing and probably historically accurate um, is the theory that Cortez asked Montezuma to commission him a map of the city. Um, and so it was drawn according to Cortez's specifications, right? Like general guidelines on how to draw a map, but it was drawn by a native. So they would know, because a native would know the area better, right? A native would know where everything was. It would have a better understanding of like distance and relativity and stuff like that. Um, and so the main reason why we think a native drew it um, is because of the emphasis that's placed on certain places in the map. For example, the map is centered around the temple, right? In the center of the city, there was this temple that they did sacrifices on. Um, and if a European had drawn the map, they probably would have put the market or something more materialistic near the center that they felt was actually the center of the culture and something that um, the city revol like revolved around, right? Either the market or the palace or something like that. Um, but, you know, the natives put the temple since that's what their world revolved around, right? Their religion. Um, so another thing, that's one thing that is major that definitely points towards um, a native artist of this map. Um, and then another thing is that the native maps usually kept the buildings to a minimum, um, as opposed to the European style, which was highly realistic, right? If there was 20 houses, they were going to paint 20 houses on their map. Whereas with the natives, they were like, oh, that's a block of houses. One house, poof. Put, a, put one house on there, it means a block. Um, it's not exactly supposed to be super hyper-realistic. They're just trying to get across the basic um, things that are there. Very interesting. When, when talking about the debate of, um, of the Nuremberg map, of its origins and the uncertainty that lies around it, whether uh, the author was European or indigenous, this theory that you mentioned lines up with what a European response would have been like during the time and what the Europeans did respond as. Um, the specific components of the Nuremberg map 
reflected and shaped European understandings of the Aztecs and yeah, the hybrid nature of this map, of it being both uh, of European and indigenous influence, you know, provided two main ways that Europeans were able to see the Aztecs as a people. Now, the mm-hmm. first way that they, that they saw the Aztecs is that they were first capable of civility. Now, this is because in the maps we see that there is urban planning. We see uh, a grid. You know, we, we see, if right. you look at the map, we see that, um, you know, there's a structure to how the society is established and how um, things are set up. Now, it's obviously, when you see, you know, the temple and when you see um, the housings and, and all these structures that are in this map, you also see that there's, you know, t- technical skill in engineering in the society, um, which, you know, points to the population being one of civil nature or one capable of civil nature. And on top of all this, having a temple provided a sense of a centralized imperial state. Now, this coupled with the writings of Cortez, we, we see that the map in itself was a way to depict that this population was able to be civilized. Um, which, you know, attracted European, uh, you know, powers and attracted especially the Spanish king during the time. Um, However, it also brought a second opinion and a second look of what the Aztec people were like, because if we look at the map, we also see that in the temple, there's also structures that point towards sacrifice, that points towards human sacrifice and and what the Europeans uh, sought to be barbarous and and um, at the time, which it, it points to the notion that um, the Christianity in the Spanish Empire and in a European um, perspective it kind of took place and now saw this uh, population as one being needed to be civilized and uh, needed to be conquered, um, which is one of the main reasons why... Uh, uh, Cortez in his his letters tried to you know provide and convince uh, King Charles uh, that the conquest that they were that they were uh, pushing towards was valid. Um, so this map did a lot to to provide that for them, and uh, the both of the components are quite remarkable. And you know the debate still stands of of. Uh, of the European versus indigenous roots of this map. Um, but then again, uh, the theory of it being indigenous is quite remarkable and uh, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, 100%. That's the one that I truly um, stand behind. Okay. Uh, thank you. So welcome back to this episode on the Historical Map Making Podcast. Again, my name is Jared Machado, and I am joined by the brilliant Allie Tucker. So good to be here. I think at this point, I want to switch gears a little bit um, and talk about some more contemporary map making. Why don't you touch upon your specialty with um, European maps that had a less obvious indigenous influence, the ones that were specifically asked for by the European governments during the Bourbon Reform and their reform of the postal system? 
Absolutely, of course. Um, now, about um, in 1746 uh, to the early 1800s, the Bourbon Reform, the market series of changes, and really the second conquest of Latin America. Um, during this time, the Spanish archives were full of maps that were sent to Spain from the Spanish-American colonies during the time of the Bourbon Reform, and Spanish and Portuguese governments requested maps and charts of the areas that they controlled. Um, in order to truly get an idea of what their colonies looked like and how they would be able to you know, best be used, um, the Spanish received these maps. However, they were frustrated with them, and this is because they could not understand them. Uh, the Spanish-American version of a map was so different than the European version uh, that the Spanish had to send map makers of their own to the colonies to get their type that, to, you know, to get a very distinct type of map, and they were very different. Um, the maps that the Spanish used uh, were, you know, woodblock printed and stuck to a very distinct medieval style of portrayal. This was this was typical in the Spanish um, you know, society and typical in the map making uh, profession of. Um, of, of you know uh, the Spanish Empire. Um, however, this was not the same in the colonies, and it's not the same in Spanish America and the indigenous interpretations of these maps. Mm -hmm. uh, they really relied on uh, you know on this heavy perspective of you know these you know the old style Spanish Empire maps. Now, so there's very little evidence to suggest that these maps were considered useful guidelines within the region itself. In other words, you know, the numerous maps that accompanied, uh, you know, the reports and were created in Guatemala for officials in Spain did not serve any demonstrable purpose for officials living in Guatemala. Um, now, these maps were not useful to the indigenous population. Um, and it was seen, uh, you know, over time that the only way that these maps considered useful is because it was able to depict a, uh, a picture of what Spanish America looked like at the time. Um, so my question is, you know, why were these indigenous maps so important during the time if the Spanish, you know, empire and in a European perspective, uh, these maps you know, didn't really serve much use. Right. So the maps um, that were made in Spanish America by the indigenous people and by the local governments were a lot more useful to the indigenous population than the Spaniards because, um, you know, they were made by them. They understood them. They knew what they were meaning. They they had been, you know, they'd grown up using these maps. And so this is just what they were used to. And they were more practical. So numerous countries in Latin America used charts or different forms of maps in order to get across information about an area. Um, they didn't really rely on pictures as much. And this is primarily evident in the Guatemalan charts used to document mail routes um, as they understood a temporal type of time. So other examples of non-pictographic maps that were um, more useful to these indigenous peoples were ones from Chile and Peru. Um, although Europe may have understood their typical pictographic maps, a large group of non-pictographic representations were popular and effective in Latin America. Um, 
I think another example of this effectiveness is evident in the way that there was no concept of a topographic map in Guatemala at the time. Um, and they just were not useful because of very rough terrain and land surveys had not been conducted yet because um, it just wasn't easy enough to get around these areas. Um, and so making these topographic maps that the Spanish wanted was just not practical. It wasn't worth their time. There was no reason why they should. Um, and so, moreover, the effectiveness of the non-pictographic map is the way people could represent a nation's geobody because they represented the relationships between towns. Um, and that's something that's a lot more difficult to do in a pictographic map. It's really hard to look at a pictographic map and be like, oh, well, it's gonna take me that long to get from point A to point B. Really, all you can see is the distance. You can't really see the time, you can't see anything else. And so what they really relied on was these charts that would show them how long it took um, and different aspects like that that was more practical for them. So for example, um, charts could enforce regional conceptions of the importance of certain towns or villages or settlements over others, like how cities were listed in order of importance, um, extending from the center of importance, which would be Guatemala City. Yeah, so these these maps um, in the in the long run, um, that even though the Spanish Empire may have not, one of my understanding is from um, from from the work is even though that they may have not have uh, been popular to Europeans because Europeans for the most part, um, pictographic maps were useful at this time. Pictographic maps uh, showed and conveyed, um, you know what a place was in a time that um, was lacking information, uh, especially that we have today, that you could pull it up on a smartphone. Um, uh, so, you know, this was typical in, in, European, in European times, but what you're saying is more of a cultural basis, correct? It's, it's, yeah, uh, it's, it's, yeah. okay. So, um, so did this have any um, change in, you know, the the understanding of socio political boundaries within uh, geo bodies, um, because you know, because if we look towards example, the example of Belize and Guatemala, how these uh, you know the borders between Belize and Guatemala were not really you know shown in a lot of uh, Spanish maps, you know. Right, and that's because. Um... They were so widely contested, right? You had constant infighting back and forth um, just over where those boundaries would lie. So it just wasn't practical for them to sit there and map out the border if it was constantly changing, right? You'd have to have a new map every week, every month. And it just wasn't practical for them to make that. So these maps that aren't maps as we think of today, but actually charts showing distances and relativity and stuff like that, um, they were just a lot more useful for the time and got the ideas across that people actually cared about. They didn't care about how, you know, the terrain looked. They didn't really care about where the border was. They wanted to know how long it would take them to get from point A to point B and not necessarily, you know, like I said, where the border of Guatemala and Belize was. Absolutely. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much for that. Uh, really appreciate yeah. it.
In conclusion, the history of different technologies in Central and South America is very fascinating. Between the amazing technologies of the Incas and the Mayas, the maps drawn by the indigenous people of the Mexica, and the different types of mapping across Central and South America and Europe, the history of science and technology in Latin America is extremely rich and worth studying in depth. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast today, and we hope you enjoyed it.